Amen. Well, as um, uh, Lucas uh, read to us, we're, we're looking at uh, Peter's first letter. It's a letter he uh, wrote to help Christians who are living in a pagan culture that is increasingly hostile to them. It's a situation we are facing arguably for ourselves today. And today's passage, uh, if you notice, while it's from the New Testament, it is packed full of quotations from the Old Testament. But that is not because Peter is like that irritating guy in the pub quiz who just wants to show off his knowledge, okay? The people he is writing to are facing growing hostility for their Christian faith, and he wants to help them deal with that, help them handle that in a right way. You see, having, begun, having become Christians, they have almost certainly stopped going to the pagan temples and worshipping the pagan gods so that their neighbours still worship. And you and I might think, you know, living in 21st century West, fine, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, freedom of religion and all of that. But of course, that's not how their neighbours would have seen it. Okay, for their, their neighbours, to them, these new Christians were risking the displeasure of the gods. And not just on them, the, the Christians, but on the whole of society, on a society that tolerated these Christians. So from the point of view of their neighbours, their beliefs weren't just different, they were harmful. They risked the displeasure of the gods coming down on them. They're shameful for them and for wider society. It's why Tacitus, the Roman politician and historian, called Christians haters of humanity. Okay, that is a, a charge against Christians that has come back into vogue in our own day. Okay, but if you are a Christian, how are you supposed to deal with that? Okay, how are you supposed to deal with that kind of rejection and the shame that uh, can come with it? The idea that your views aren't just old-fashioned or traditional, but they're hateful. In fact, they're harmful. How are you supposed to deal with that? Or if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what should you make of that? Should that response of the wider society put you off and turn you away from the Christian faith? Well, to help these guys make sense of it, Peter talks about buildings. First point then, everyone's building. Okay, look at verse 7. And Peter is quoting from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in its original context, when the psalm was talking about builders, the psalmist is referring to foreign leaders, the leaders of foreign nations who were opposing God's anointed king of God's people. But of course, hundreds of years later, Jesus takes that same, those same words from Psalm 118, and he applies the builders to the Jewish religious leaders who are now opposing him. Then after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter picks up those words from Psalm 118, and he again refers builders to the Jewish leaders who had persecuted Jesus and now persecuting the church. But now, in today's passage, Peter takes up those words again, and he uses them again, except this time the builders are, verse 7, those who do not believe. 
the people who are now opposing Peter's friends. Okay, so who are the builders? I mean, are they the foreign leaders of Psalm 118? Or are they the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day? Or are they those people, the authorities, the neighbours who are now turning on the Christians that Peter's writing to? And the answer is, they're all builders. They're all the builders. The foreign leaders from Psalm 118, they're trying to build a geopolitical order in which they come out on top. The Jewish leaders were trying to build a power structure that preserved their position. The neighbours and authorities rejecting Peter's friends, they're trying to build a culture in which the gods are honoured and society is kept safe. They're all building or trying to build something. And if you think about it, our, our politicians today, they're still at it, aren't they? President Biden said his government would be about building a better future for all Americans. Theresa May, one of the numerous previous prime ministers of the UK recently, <laughs> claimed that her government was building a stronger, more prosperous Britain. Cyril, Cyril Ramaphosa said his goal is building a brighter future for all South Africans, while Narinda Modi, very modestly, is building a new India. Okay, now sure, those are just slogans, aren't they? Okay, but of whatever colour, what, of whatever political stripe, politicians and pressure groups are seeking to build and shape society the way they want it to be. Okay, but it's not just that kind of large-scale building that's going on. All of us, whether you are aware of it or not, whether you recognise it or not, all of us are trying to build a life. Or you're trying to build a family, or you're trying to build a relationship, or you're trying to build a career, or a reputation, or an identity. In fact, in one of his parables, Jesus used the illustration of two builders, a wise one and a foolish one, to describe how we go about living life. We're all builders. Now, in the old day, in the old days, uh, architects and builders used stones, didn't they? And you ended up not just with buildings, but with beauty, like King's College Chapel. Today, they use concrete and you end up with a Rolex Learning Centre. <laughs> but in Peter's day, if you wanted a building to last, the first stone that you laid was, verse 6 and 7, a cornerstone. It's the keystone. The stone from which every other stone took its line and its height. Whether the next stone was in line or out of line, whether it was the right height or the wrong height, was measured against the cornerstone. And every building project, whether of politicians or of pressure groups, or your own building project of your own life, every building project, we're all looking to one cornerstone or another, something that tells you this is in line, that isn't. This behavior is acceptable, that isn't. This ambition's good, that ambition isn't. And for Attempts at society building, that could be the market, or it could be Marxism. It could be personal liberty or traditional values. It could be expressive individualism or a gender-neutral society that people are trying to build. 
And for your own life, there is going to be a cornerstone. Okay, it could be the morals of traditional, that come with traditional religion. Or it could be the opinions of those around you. Well, if they say it's all right, if wider society says it's all right, it must be all right. They're the cornerstone. It could be something as vague as, if it's not hurting anyone, it's okay. That's the line. Or it could be the ideas and concepts of Buddhism, or the Stoics, or even Jordan Peterson. Now, you might think, that, uh, not me, okay, I'm my own cornerstone. Well, maybe, but something has still shaped you, hasn't it? Something has still chiseled you. Influences and ideas have worked on you to make you think, this is the line, this is right, that's wrong. Now, what I want you to do is just to take a step back and look at the building. Okay, look at the building of society, look at the building of our own lives. Take an honest look at it. Okay, and what do you see? Okay, the building's wonky, isn't it? Not everything's straight. Not everything is in line. In a society built on the cornerstone of Marxism, the oppressed become the oppressors. Okay, but look to the market as your cornerstone, and there seems to be no answer to greed. Try and build on the cornerstone of an inclusive society, and it rapidly becomes exclusive of those who disagree with you. Make tolerance your thing, and it rapidly becomes intolerant. Build a society on critical race theory, or try to do that, and racial divisions grow. Okay, but let's take a step back from our own lives. If you build a life on career, or the pursuit of wealth, or romantic relationships, or how other people see you, things rapidly get out of whack. And Peter's saying to these early Christians, if you, if you really want to understand why you are being rejected, why society is the way it is, why, why society is turning on you, or, or why someone's life may be out of whack, you need to understand that they're building on the wrong cornerstone. Okay, so second point then, the true cornerstone. Now, if you think about it, there's nothing more dead than a rock, is there? Or a big stone. You know, I mean, have you ever tried talking to a rock? Have you ever tried hugging a rock? I mean, you get more emotional response from an Englishman, don't you? Okay, but look how Peter describes Jesus. He is, verse 4, a living stone. Now, when Jesus was taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb cut from rock, cut from stone. Christ is stone-cold dead, but God raised him from the dead, Peter is saying, and as the living stone, Peter is saying he has become, he's the cornerstone of everything that God's building. Everyone else may be building on different cornerstones, but what God is doing is built on Christ as the cornerstone. Whether something is in line or out of line, whether an ambition is, is good or whether it is bad, is all measured against him. But of course, what Peter's saying is that not everyone wants it that way. Verse 4 again, Jesus is a living stone rejected by men. And Peter saw that rejection of Jesus firsthand, and now his friends are experiencing it for themselves. Not everyone thinks that Jesus is worth building a life or society on. 
Now, when a political party realizes that their leader has become unpopular, they dump them. Is that what God does with Jesus? And the answer, of course, is no. And in verse 6, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28, where God says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. In other words, extrapolate that to them, to us. You can be rejected by everybody else. They can tell you that you are wrong, that you're on the wrong side of history, that you're a hater. They can say all of those things about you and you can still be the apple of God's eye. Just look at Jesus. You see, Peter knew that it was precisely through Jesus being rejected that God was going about saving his enemies. Look what Peter said at his own trial. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's saying, no other building project will do it. You want to build a society that preserves your position, Jewish leaders. Or you want to build a life that gives you what you want, people of Lausanne. And we think that this cornerstone or that cornerstone will do it. Obey all the rules. No, throw off all the rules. There's too much government. No, there's too little government. The problem's this group of people. No, it's that group of people. I need to earn as much as I can. No, I need to pursue minimalism. And Peter's saying, no, all of the, they all miss the point. The ultimate solution to humanity's problems to oppression or greed, to racism or intolerance, and the source of true inner happiness and peace with yourself, but ultimately with God, is Christ. He's the way of salvation. There is no other way. He's the cornerstone. But of course, that's deeply polarizing, isn't it? Then and now. Because as Peter makes clear, Jesus is either the cornerstone or, verse 8, a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence. Now, have you ever tripped over something and gone flying? Okay, Sue did it this week when we were walking down this steep hill in the ice. Or has anyone, you know, have you ever tripped over something, gone flat on your face? Or has anyone ever said anything to you that was so objectionable that you got up and walked out, or you were left wanting to punch them in the face? Have you ever fallen flat on your face? Ever wanted to punch someone in the face? Neither of those two responses do we tend to associate with Jesus, do we? You know, whatever you think of Jesus, you know, I doubt what you know of his character or his teaching sends you sprawling or leaves you wanting to send him sprawling. Sure, but what about his exclusivity? What about his demand for your absolute and total allegiance to him above everything else? You see, in Peter's day, the Roman Empire worked by adding the gods of the people it conquered to their pantheon of gods. You worship our gods and we will worship yours. Everyone wins. But the Christians refused and still refuse to do that. 
because there is only one God. There is only one way of salvation, the Bible says. There is only one cornerstone. And it's not the gods of the age, then or now. It's not the gods of the progressives or the traditionalists. It's not the gods of the right or of the left. It's Christ. And that was as offensive then as it is now. Okay, but Peter goes even further, verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What does he mean by that? I mean, does he mean that the inevitable outcome of you choosing not to believe is that you stumble? Or does he mean that God has destined people not to believe and so stumble? And the answer is maybe both. But that's probably not what Peter is getting at. You see, the verb he uses in verse 8 for being destined is the same verb he uses in verse 6 for God laying the cornerstone. In other words, by God appointing Christ as the cornerstone, he has appointed two possible responses to him. You either trust him or you don't. You either make Christ your cornerstone or you reject him. There's no middle ground. The cornerstone can't be half in or half out. In the words of verse 7, it's either you who believe or those who do not believe. There's no no man's land when it comes to Christ. Now, why point that out to them? I think it's because he wants them and us to see that the hostility you experience for your Christian faith, even that is under God's control. He's destined even that. He's appointed even that. He's sovereign even over those who might oppose you. Now, does that make the pain of rejection any less? I mean, if you're at work or on campus and you are debating inside yourself whether to speak out for Christ or not, or whether to speak out for the truth or not, or, and you're debating, the, you're trying to weigh up the kind of hostility that is going to come your way if you do speak out, or if you, or if you do speak out and you face that hostility and the incoming missiles, the shame and the sense of shame that comes with rejection, it can still be very real, can't it? I mean, you sense, you feel that shame. It's why we hesitate. So why do it? Why hold on to faith in Christ when everyone else is rejecting him and rejecting you? Why hold on to faith in Christ and be open about it Or why become a Christian in the first place when the costs are beginning to climb? Well, Peter says that if those who don't believe stumble, things look very different for those who do believe. And the two things that much of our political or personal building are trying but failing to achieve, Peter says God gives us in Christ. Third point then, a new identity and a new purpose. Verses eight to nine. They stumble, but you, I want you to imagine you're a tourist, okay, and you're visiting some city somewhere, and you're visiting an old cathedral, and you go inside, 
and you're looking around inside. What do you see? And your eyes get accustomed to the darkness after the bright outside. What do you start seeing? What do you start taking in? There are stained plaques on the walls, aren't there? En engraved with the names of the great and the good who have gone before. And then there are these tombs and there are these statues of the saints lying at rest on top of their tombs. Then you go outside again and you see more stones in a graveyard maybe, marking the places where people are buried. They are all dead stones remembering dead people. Now look at verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, so it's not just Christ who's a living stone, but those who, when you, when you get verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house because when you put your trust in him, his life from the stone cold dead life becomes your life. But not so you can live a life in glorious isolation. You see, our current culture tells you, you're an individual. You're an individual. Don't let anyone else squash you into their mold. Don't let people make you conform. You're, stand on your own. Create your own identity, unrestrained by anyone else. That's a heavy burden to bear, isn't it? You've got to create your own identity. You, you've got to discover you. That it, there, it's no wonder that anxiety levels and um, loneliness are rising because it undermines community amongst other things. And while Christianity has plenty to say about us being individuals, here Peter is talking about community, the kind of society, the kind of community that God is building. Because when you come into relationship with Christ, you come into relationship with all the other stones he is placing into relationship with him. Because God is building a house, Peter says, not a sculpture park. He's building a temple, not a tourist attraction where you go around and say, oh, look at that statue there, that's lovely. Oh, look at the, look at the marking on the, oh, that's great. He's building a temple where he dwells among his people, where his stones, as Augustine said, are cemented together by love. So these guys might be experiencing an, an increasing animosity that puts neighbor against neighbor. We might be living in a culture that emphasizes the individual and so undermines community. But God's building project, Peter says, is about bringing people together, stone upon stone, as each one finds his or her line from Christ. Okay, but then Peter takes that idea of identity together, corporate identity together and he explodes it okay because if you are to handle rejection and shame you need to know that what they're saying about you is not the last word okay you need to know that somebody whose opinion matters more has something better to say about you so verse nine but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And all of those terms were terms, are terms used in the Old Testament to describe Israel, eth ethnic Israel. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, Moses said, 
The Lord your God has chosen you, ethnic Israel, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But now, Peter says, your racial ethnic background doesn't matter. Jew and Gentile, black and white, Dutch giants and English pygmies. In Christ, we are one. We are all members of his new race, his chosen race. Listen, if you try and build a society on racial theories, critical or otherwise, you're going to drive people apart. You pit the races against each other. But if you make Christ the cornerstone, it will kill racial pride. And as it does, it'll bring people together. Okay, but then Peter says we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he's got that from Exodus 19 verse 6, where God says of Israel... You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter is saying, what was true of ethnic Israel is now true of all of you, Jew and Gentile together. Together, you are a royal priesthood. You're royal because you serve a king, which is great, isn't it? Because it means that every Christian is now a royalist. Every Christian is now a monarchist, even the Americans amongst you. Okay, we've all got a king. We're all royalists, and it is a priesthood. It's a royal priesthood, because what Israel failed to do, the church is called to do, to mirror the glory and the goodness and the grace of God to the world. But we're also a holy nation. I mean, we may come from multiple different nations. We, the church may be scattered throughout the nations. But God has chosen us, Peter says, and set us apart to be a people for his own possession. We're God's people. That's who you are, Peter is saying. That's how God sees you. That's how God thinks of you. Everyone else may be telling you that your beliefs are an embarrassment or worse, they are shameful. But God is telling you, I've chosen you. I have set you apart. I have bought you at infinite cost and I am building you into a new alternative society joined together by love. Every other cornerstone will leave you, your life, or society wonky. But Christ gives you a rock-solid identity. And not just an identity, but a purpose. Okay, imagine you are at a training event, and the facilitator asks you to write down what your purpose is. What, what's your purpose in your studies, students? What's your purpose... Workers at work. What's your purpose as a friend or as a spouse or as a parent? What's your purpose in life? What would you write? Or what would you write for us as a church? What's the purpose of a local church? Well, Peter says the purpose of the royal priesthood that God is building is, verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, we have been set apart to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Okay, so if Peter was sat next to you at that training event, he would lean across to you and say, write down proclamation. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to proclaim. You have been loved by him to proclaim his love to the world. 
And in Peter's day, the wealthy would fund civic works or make large charitable donations as a way of gaining honor in an honor-shame culture. And plaques and public announcements would make clear where the funding has come from. This was built by the generous donation of Mr. X. What are they proclaiming? They're proclaiming themselves. Have things changed? I mean, social media may have replaced stone inscriptions, but the drive, the need to try and promote yourself, to feel good about yourself, to get honor in an honor-shame culture has not gone away. But self and self-promotion, they are an unstable stone to build on, aren't they? Because what happens, if, what happens if, somebody who, if somebody goes on a better holiday than you've gone on? What if somebody prettier or more ripped than you pitches up at church? Okay, what happens if somebody publishes more than you or earns more than you? You need a more secure identity and a better purpose than that. And Peter says, only Christ can give it to you. And when he is your cornerstone, it's his excellencies you proclaim, not your own. Does that wipe away your individuality? No, it doesn't. Because he is the hero of the story. But it's still your story. The story of how he rescued you from darkness and brought you into the light. The story of though you had rejected him, though you were his enemy, he came and saved you. So facing hostility is not a reason to hide. Peter's saying, facing hostility is not a reason to go quiet. Instead, when you understand the grace of God that you have experienced, the grace of God towards his enemies, it doesn't shut your mouth, it opens it. But not to burn those who are rejecting you. Not to burn those who stand against you, but in praise of the one who stood by you. And that's another reason to embrace the rejection. Just briefly, last point, the answer to shame. Okay, look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter has got the story of the prophet Hosea and his wife Goma in mind. And God told Hosea to marry Gomer, even though he knew that she would be unfaithful to him. But it was through Hosea's faithfulness and love for Gomer that God was painting a picture of his own love for those who reject and are unfaithful to him. You see, when Gomer gave birth to their first daughter, God told Hosea to call that little girl no mercy and to call their second son, not my people. Because through Hosea, God was saying to Israel, I will no more have mercy, and you are not my people. But that's not the end of the story, is it? And Hosea didn't cast Gomer off, even though she was unfaithful, because God doesn't cast his people off. Instead, through Hosea, God promised a time would come when... I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And Peter is saying, and that 
has been fulfilled in you. There was a day when you did not know God's mercy, but now you do. There was a day when you did not belong to his people, but now in Christ you do belong. But what did it require for Goma to be redeemed from her unfaithfulness? What did, it do, what did it require for her to experience mercy and to have a future in God's people? It required Hosea, her husband, to be willing to bear the rejection and carry the shame. And Peter is saying, and that is what Jesus has done for you. At the cross, verse 7, he was a stone that the builders rejected. He was stripped and mocked and insulted and shamed. And he experienced the rejection from men, but ultimately the rejection of God that we deserve. And he did it for you. Verse 6, so that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. At the cross, God the Father turned his face away from God the Son that he might turn it towards us. Christ got no mercy so that we might receive mercy. He was cast off, he was excluded so that we might be brought in. And that Christ would do that for us, Peter says, is honour. Verse 7 the honour is for you who believe. Others may reject you, but Christ doesn't. Others may shame you, but Christ honours you. And he is building you into something that is stable and lasting. Something that gives you an identity and a purpose. It's a new society within society. It is a city within a city. It is a kingdom amongst all the kingdoms, but a kingdom that loves its enemies, that does good to those who reject it, because that is how God treated us. No other cornerstone can do it, but Christ can. Let's pray.